0: And so, in seeking for a a structure for the sermon, I thought that I would keep with questions, this idea of questions. So, here's the organizing sentence for our sermon. The questions we should ask at Christmas. The questions we should ask. Or you might say the childlike wonder questions we should ask at Christmas that most of us have outgrown These are the questions. I'm just going to use the language that he uses. Because sometimes I feel like I repeat myself over and over and over again, which I think is a good thing. I mean, that's what you're supposed to do is just keep telling people about Jesus over and over and over again. But sometimes you want a fresh angle to, take, to, to, to look at something. And I feel like the language that he uses from the 1800s, uh, being of uh, 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 Great Britain and Englishmen, and the way he wrote things was a fresh way for me to see it and maybe for you as well. So the first question that we should ask at Christmas is the one that he asks. What child is this? What child is this? So if you're a note taker, you're writing that down. What child is this? Now, the what, he, his, inter- his interrogative, that's another word for a question. Yeah. I was confirming things there with my resident grammar expert. An interrogative is a question. The question he uses is what, but he's actually not asking a what question. He's asking a who question. I'll paraphrase for you. What child is this? Who is Jesus? That's what he's asking. What child is this? Who is Jesus? The what question he asks is actually the next one a what, why question. But the question of who is Jesus surfaces all over the Bible and especially during the ministry. Of Jesus. The, the New Testament gospel stories are full of questions. Let me just give you a few. Jesus is having dinner with some arrogant, self-righteous people. He had dinner with these types of people. They were actually the religious leaders of the day. They're self-righteous and they're arrogant. And while he's having dinner... A prostitute comes in crying, washing his feet with her hair and her tears. Now, if you were a child, you'd ask some good questions about that scene. What's a prostitute, you'd ask? And then you'd say, why is she down under the table washing his feet. And then you'd say, why is she washing his feet with her tears and her hair? You got a lot of questions about that. At least you should. Jesus shocks everybody sitting there with a story he tells about the debt of forgiveness. And then he tells her that her sins, have been forgiven and all the religious leaders say who is this that forgives sins who is this who even forgives sins? There's a question. There's another time. He's on the boat. You remember this scene? He's on the boat with the disciples. They're, they're out fishing. Many of the disciples were fishermen. They are people that are very used to being at sea. They've been at sea during storms. They, they're, 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 uh, they're very comfortable, many of them. In a boat, at sea, even in a storm. But this storm is so bad that they are scared to death, literally scared to death. They think they're going to die. So this is a big storm. This just isn't like you and me capsizing the canoe at Marsh Creek. This is a major storm that's got them scared. And they, they're, they're so scared that they think they're going to die. They look around for Jesus because Jesus is showing us to be someone who knows how to handle these kinds of things and can even do miracles. They look. Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat during the storm. He gets up, rebukes them for their little bit of faith and then he tells the storm, the wind, and the waves to be still, and it happens, and the disciples ask another who question. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey? And it goes on and on and on. Regularly through Jesus' ministry, the religious leaders and those that have witnessed a healing asking the question, who are you? Jesus tried to tell people who he was, but they weren't having it. But then they would regularly ask questions about who are you. He seemed to show no regard for certain of the commands. He was always healing people on the Sabbath, and that got the religious leaders all upset. Who are you? Who do you think you are that you can act this way, that you can come in here and just disregard things and disrupt things? He's regularly being asked, who are you? And you remember when he's he's hauled before Pilate, the governor, and, and they're, be, they're, they're, they're making uh, inquisition as to the charges that against him. And he's being accused of saying that he's a king, that he's king of the Jews. And so Pilate asks him, are you the Christ? Who are you? Are you the Christ? Questions, the who is question, have run through the New Testament when it comes to to Jesus. It's a good question to ask, have you ever contemplated who is Jesus? It's the most important question you've ever pondered, because until you know who he is, you don't know what he came to do. You don't know what his purpose was. So at Christmas, it's good to ask, what child is this? Now, let's just talk for a minute about some answers Turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. We're just going to flip around to a couple passages today, but turn your Bible on, flip over to Matthew, first uh, book of your New Testament. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. Matthew is the only gospel we've never preached through at Brandywine Grace. So we've preached through Mark, we've preached through Luke, we just finished preaching through John, Matthew is on the list. Matthew starts his gospel account differently than the way John started his gospel account. We're going to look at John in a minute. We've looked at John before. But John's, in the beginning, was the Word. You know that beginning. Very different than Matthew's. Matthew starts with a genealogy. Uh, a very, in, in, in my estimation, a very boring way to start a book. Like if you if you asked me, I want to write a New York Times bestseller, I'm going to start with a genealogy. I'd say time out. That might not get readers sucked in, but that's where Matthew starts. and And he gives us this carefully crafted genealogy of Jesus. In fact, verse one, it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he lists all of these people that are in the genealogy of Jesus, and let me just tell you, it is filled with some curious characters. If I was crafting the family tree there's, there's people in this family tree that I would have tried to leave out. God doesn't look on the outside. But he gives this family tree, and then we get to verse 16, and it ends, and it, Matthew tells us, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, The husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Matthew is answering the question, who is Jesus? What child is this? Right out of the gates. He says it right in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ The son of David. All of Matthew's readers would have known right at that point that he was talking about the future coming king. The one who would remain on the throne forever. The one in the line of David who would be a king like David only better because he's Jesus. Because he's the Messiah. He's the true Messiah. He's the one that they were looking for. Matthew comes right out of gates and says, I want to tell you the story of Jesus. I'm going to begin with his genealogy, and he is the son of David, he is the son of Abraham, and he is, has Joseph as a father who was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Messiah, King Christ. That's your answer. What child is this? He's the king. He's the king over all. He rules and reigns. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ, this one that Matthew is talking about, as Lord over all. That's who He is. John does it in a different way. Just look over to John. John chapter 1. And we're going to put some verses up. John chapter 1. We've read this so many times, but we'll look at this. John chapter 1, this is verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was w- with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then give me uh, another verse. I think we added one more verse. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is answering the question, who is Jesus, through His opening introduction to His gospel, which is all about the good news of Jesus. It's all about, John wants to tell you what Jesus' identity is. Who is He? He's the Son of God. He came the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And everybody who believes in him will have life in his name. That's what John is eager to tell you. He's eager to answer this question. Who is Jesus? What child is this? The Philadelphia Eagles... What a transition. The Philadelphia Eagles, who, Lord willing, will be 13 and 1 this afternoon. But you never know. Playing the Chicago Bears, though, I'm fairly confident. Uh, The Philadelphia Eagles, if you're an Eagles fan, they have the Eagles fight song. E-A-G-L-E-S, Eagles. You know it. You should. not all teams i love studying this kind of stuff because teams have cultures that that evolve around them a few years ago while well it's been back to back probably around 2008 2009 hurricane katrina devastated new orleans and in that year the new orleans saints won the super bowl and it was a huge event for them because it galvanized a city that had been so wrecked by Katrina. And one of the things we realized is because it put the New Orleans Saints on the map is they do something too. They have their own chant of sorts. They have their own things that, that they do to show their support for their team. They actually use a question no. It's, it's really interesting to use a question. I think we got a picture. So there's, there's some diehard New Orleans Saints fans. And you see, you might not recognize this, so let me explain to you um, what you're seeing there if you're not a sports fan. It says, who dat? Who dat is what they're saying. It, it, comes out, it comes actually from a high school football team in the New Orleans area who went on to win three championship state titles and on the bus one day seeking to defend their third state championship title, one of the captains of the team said something like this, who that going to beat them? I can't remember what their name was. Who that? He said. And and it became so popular that the saints said, we want that. So it became this question, who that going to beat them saints? Who that going to beat them saints? And so people started saying, who that? Who that? Who now the Cincinnati Bengals, they twisted it a little bit. Who-day. So you see them, they've got who-day across their chest. who dat? This there, even songs came out of this period of time where people took this hoodat because it became so popular and the song became who hoodat, We dat, We dat. It was was an opportunity. The question itself was an opportunity to say, the only person that can beat us is ourselves. Like, we are the best. Nobody can beat us. Who dat? A rhetorical question meant to lead you to yourself. Who dat in the manger? A rhetorical question meant to lead you to the real, true beauty of Jesus. A child might look at the nativity and say, who that? The answer is Jesus, the son of God, the lamb of God who came to take the sins of the world. That anybody who believes in him will have eternal life. That's who he is. That's our first question. What child is this? Second question. So these are all under the category of questions we should ask at Christmas. What child is this? Second question. Why lies he in such mean a state? Some of you say, I don't even know what that means. Let's paraphrase it. Why lies he? So lies, he's... Where does Jesus lie at the first Christmas? He lies in uh, a manger. When he says such mean a state, he means why does, in light of who he is, we just talked about what child is this, we've answered that question, now he's got another question. If this is who the king of glory is, then why does he lie in a barnyard? Why does he lie in a manger? Why does he lie in such a a crude place? If he's the king of glory, I would expect him to be born in a different place. I would expect better accommodations for the son of God than what he's got. Born in a, a rundown barn. Swaddled in the claws that you could find in a rundown barn. Why? The writer is asking us a question. Why does he lie in such mean a state? It's another way of asking this question: What did Jesus come to do? So, so the first question gets at identity. Who is Jesus? What child is this? Who is he? The second question gets at what did he come to do? What was his mission? What was his purpose? That's, that's what the is inviting us to ponder. Why does he lie in such mean estate? What did he come to do? Romans chapter 5. Let me just answer that question with a verse that many of us would know. Romans 5 verses 6 through 8, answers the question, why does he lie in such mean estate? Or what did Jesus come to do? Paul answers that question in Romans. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died. For the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, no, perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the what question. That answers what was Jesus' purpose in coming. Jesus was born in a manger to die on a cross. Jesus was born to die. If you have a manger, which a lot of us in America, we love Jesus in a manger. It's all over. Hallmark's not afraid of Jesus in a manger. They're a little more afraid of uh, nails, spears shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. I've, I've, Gabe and I were talking about this, that this week, that there's so many good renditions on Spotify. Do you Go into Spotify, do a little search, type in what child is this, and see all the incredible versions that come up that, that, that perform this song. One of the things I've noticed, though, is the more popular the song it is, they forgot some of it. They leave out. I, I challenge you to this. Go listen. My, my wife loves Josh Groban. Any Josh Groban fans? Yeah, mostly ladies. I saw a couple guys. Um, but yeah, he can sing. I mean, he can. Story says that, you know, Andrea Pacelli got sick, couldn't perform. Who can we do this? Who can do this? Somebody said, Josh Groban, this young, this young kid can do it. And he rockets of fame he can sing and he kills it on what child is this but he does not sing of why Jesus is laying in such mean state. he doesn't sing the line nails spears shall pierce them through nobody wants the vision of a baby in a manger growing up and getting thrust through with a spear we don't like that it's like that's too much Kids can actually deal with this kind of stuff. They'll ask questions about this. But adults, we're way too mature for that. Every good story has people dying in it. The answer to the question is in that verse. I wonder what William Chatterton Dix would say to everybody who performs that song without the second verse. He'd say, you meant... You missed the point. Like, he would probably just say, no, you can't sing it that way. That's not fair. I wrote it. (laughs) I had an intent when I wrote this thing, and it it was to answer the question, who is Jesus, and what did he come to do? And you gutted the what did he come to do right out of the song because you're uncomfortable with it. The wooden manger is prophetic to the wooden cross that Jesus would be stretched out upon. Christmas always wants to bring you to the heart of the gospel, the good news. It always wants to bring you right there to the good news. Because apart from the really true good news, all you'll do is is try to satisfy yourself with the things of this world. But die completely unsatisfied and lost apart from the good news of Jesus Christ, born in a manger to die on a cross, to rise again and save us. That's the story of Christmas. The stable that he was born in always wants to lead us to the place of the skull. The manger only makes sense. It doesn't make sense that the Son of God would be born in a manger if if we didn't understand what he came to do. Why lies he in such mean a state? Because Christmas is telling you that you could never get to God on your own. God sent Jesus to come get you. And He sent Jesus to be born in a very humble estate, that he might die on the cross, that he might rise again and bring life to you in His name. So everybody that has put their hope in Jesus is going to be saved forever and ever and ever. Amen? So I gave you two questions. Questions we should ask at Christmas. What child is this? That was the first one. He's Jesus. Why lies he in such mean a state? He's embracing death, even death upon a cross, to save his people from their sins. He emptied himself in order to do that. What's the third question? Well, the writer doesn't ask another question. He only asks two questions. What he does in the third verse is he tells the singer how they should respond to Jesus in light of who he is and what he's done. In light of his identity and his mission, this is how you should respond to him. And so he says, let's bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. And then he says, let loving hearts enthrone him. This is how we should respond. So he starts off by telling us what the wise men brought Jesus. So the third question is this, what should I bring? What child is this? Why lies he in such mean estate? What should I bring? What should I bring to Jesus? That's one of those little kid questions. Everybody wants the an easy answer. In some ways, I can't tell you what you should bring. But I know it gets at you should bring yourself. It would be a lot easier if we could just bring gold or incense or myrrh. I mean, um, well, maybe not a lot easier because you'd have to go get some, but probably somewhere we could find some gold. Incense, just go to your favorite hippie shop. (laughs) Myrrh, I don't know. (laughs) You're going to have to go to a funeral director and get some embalming oils. That's what the mirror was, by the way. In some ways, it's easier to bring a thing. We do this. We we come. We what does Jesus want from me? Well, in a in a sense, it's true that he does want our obedience. But obedience is always a response to grace. It doesn't come before grace. In other words, you don't obey your way into the kingdom of Christ. You just come as you are. And so in response to his grace, though, obedience is important, right? Because Jesus becomes your king. you Begin to live for him. And so the things that he calls you to do once he's saved you are important to you. But obedience sometimes can be easier for us. And so what we do is we do the obedient things that we think Jesus wants us to bring and we just kind of mail them in as if that's all that matters. So you might bring going to church every Sunday. Is that a good thing to do? Yes, that's a good thing to do. But Jesus doesn't want your religion. So when we start making gold, incense, and myrrh, our religious activity, we're missing the point. What you should bring to Jesus is a heart that enthrones him. A heart that says, in light of who you are and what you have done, I live for you. I love you in light of how you have loved me. And I want to obey you. I want to, I want to please you with my life. I want to tell other people about you. That's what you want to do. If you're truly in Christ, you actually want to do those things. Not perfectly. Life is like, isn't it? It's like a wrestling in the shadow lands. I feel torn at times. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. The things I should do are the things I don't want to do. I know what that feels like. You know what that feels like. But what God is asking is what, what, what we should do we bring is a heart that says to Jesus, you rule and reign. You are my savior. I'm going to do what you've called me to do. I'm going to look at the scriptures and see what the scriptures call me to do in obedience. And I'm going to do that out of response for my great love for you because I could never save myself. You came and rescued me. You came and saved me and I owe you my life. We, what should I bring? You bring Him your heart. You bring Him your life. And you offer it to Him. And then you pray things like Jesus taught us to pray. Lord, I'm getting up again today. And, and I just want to say that You're my Father. You love me. You're holy. So Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, start with me. Start with me. that's, That's what you're saying when you bring yourself to Jesus. Sometimes that can be hard when you're going through a hard time. This hymn, What Child is This? And let me ask the band to return because we're going to end here. We're going to uh, take the Lord's Supper, take communion together in just a minute, but the band can come back. The writer of this song, What Child Is This? It's an interesting story. He became severely ill He suffered a near-fatal illness around 30 years of age. And the illness kept him uh, bedridden for months. So he was a follower of Jesus. He loved Jesus, but he suffered this near-fatal illness, and he uh, couldn't leave his bed for like four to five months. And during that period of time he recounts that he became severely depressed. Wanted to die. It was in that moment, in, those, in that period of time, that he wrote What Child is This? His, the most famous hymns that he ever wrote, the ones that went on throughout church history to be sung by many churches... See, especially here at Christmas, were written in his darkest moments. Some of you are going through a dark time. And when you go through a dark time, you often will ask, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? And, and this is not to make light of anybody's suffering. I, I've, I've experienced suffering to some degree in my life, and I've pastored people that are walking through suffering, and I know some of you are as well. It's not to make light of our suffering by saying, by bringing some thoughts on, to this. But when our, when our question is, why is this happening to me over and over again, it's actually a charge to God. It can be almost an accusation, like if I were you, God, I would not do this. I would act differently. I would handle this whole situation concerning me in an entirely different manner than you. What's the implication of that? That I would do a better job at running the world than you do. And what's, what's happening there, when we ask why questions, why is this happening to me, we, we, we inevitably then pray that God would change our circumstances. Take this away, take this away, take this away, take this away. And when we pray like that, we can start to question. I was just talking with somebody, a, a dear friend who's going through a really difficult time and they were saying to me they're having a crisis of faith right now because of something that they're experiencing. And I, I was seeking to listen and understand and relate to them but, and what they're going through is hard. But sometimes when we go through what we call a crisis of faith, we are actually calling into question the love of God for us. And I wonder if our prayers could change if we're going through a difficult time if instead we don't put the burden of proof on God to show that he loves us by changing our current circumstances but actually believing that I know he loves me because he sent his son to die for me and he's giving me life eternal and somehow, some way, he's going to use this situation for good in my life and if I understood his ways that are higher than my ways, I would pray in accordance with what he's doing. So a better question than why is this happening to me is why is this happening for me? What is God doing in my life right now? Because I'm I'm not going to call into question his love for me. I'm going to begin with, I know that he loves me, and because he loves me, he must be up to something good. I don't understand it. Will you just give me a glimpse, God, so that I can follow you today? Give me the strength I need to follow you today. that I can please you with my life. Why is this happening for me? God isn't looking for empty religion from us, gold, incense, and myrrh. He's looking for our hearts. And sometimes in trial, God gets our hearts. There's a prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T, oftentimes to our pain. But we don't see it in the moment. We see it after we see what God has done through it. Nothing's happening to you that's outside of His sovereign will over every aspect and detail of your life. When we can't trace His hand, church, we've got to trust His heart. Jesus, the Christ of Christmas, offers himself as an all-sufficient Savior to all who have needs, to all who feel lost, to all who are without hope. Amen. Jesus' identity and his mission are at the heart of Christmas. They dominate the Bible story, and the answers to the questions, what child is this? Why lies he in such mean estate? What should I bring? All of these lead us to sing, joy, joy, for Christ is born, the babe, the son of Mary.